Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. William Allen joins us today. He is Emeritus Professor of Political Philosophy at Michigan State University. Now he is a resident scholar at the Center for Urban Renewal and Education in Washington, D.C. His many writings include Rethinking Uncle Tom, the Political Philosophy of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and George Washington, America's First Progressive. Uh, He has edited a new collection of essays by several contributors entitled The State of Black America, our topic today. Welcome, Professor Allen. I'm delighted to be with you. How are you today? Uh, I'm, I'm getting along, getting along. You know, it's, it's hot, but uh, okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, in, in his, you, you have a foreword, a brief foreword by Thomas Klingenstein, uh, which speaks of, quote, changing the narrative, which is going to be, I presume, one of the major aims of this yes. book. What is the existing narrative, and how must it change? I can say that in a word. It's racism with a capital R. That's the existing narrative. That's a poison that's been injected into the veins of the culture. And so changing the narrative is a form of chemotherapy, trying to get rid of that toxemia that is really dividing us and threatening to destroy us. Indeed. It, it, I mean, this, this, I, I didn't put this in my notes, but off topic, is, is the poison worse today than it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago? It's a new poison. So let me be clear and make a distinction. I'm not saying racism with a small r. I'm not saying they're not racist. I'm saying the narrative that America is systemically, institutionally, and structurally racist with a capital R is something brand new. Right. That has been introduced with the intention of serving as a wedge, a divisive wedge, to pave the way to transform the country. So we have a past, and we can talk about that. And the book talks about that because, as you know, this book is, uh, presents a historical overview as well as economic, statistical, social, cultural, and policy. So, right. so that we're trying to cover the entire uh, roadwork on this. But the fact of the matter is that the historic reality of slavery and then enforced segregation is, in fact, not the same thing as we're dealing with today when we confront the anti-racism campaign or racism with a capital R. Right. I I think that's a very important distinction. Racism with a capital R from racism with a small r. And I'll I'll just uh, add what what you said. The book, it's not a polemical book on on this it's packed with empirical data uh yes. for for instance economic data and and social data as as well 
So uh, in, the, in the introduction, to move, move on, uh, Mikhail Rose Good asserts, quote, in the 21st century, it is increasingly perilous to try to tell the truth about the state of Black America. What do you say to people who respond to that? Oh, come on, perilous? Isn't that a little bit of an exaggeration? What do you, how's your response to that? My response to that is Ms. Good is reflecting very well what she learned in the course of her reflections on this topic and her working closely with me who guided her in the development of her understanding. And I shared with her something that happened 30 years ago when I was leaving my position as chair of the Commission on Civil Rights for the United States. And I went to Capitol Hill to speak to the Wednesday group. That's the group of Republicans who meet informally just to talk about issues. And I presented them an update on the status of the country, at the conclusion of which I also explained to them what I th would advise them to say and do with regard to racial issues in the United States. To a person, they replied to me, we cannot speak that way, we cannot do that, we would be called racist. Now, that was 30 years ago. Yeah. And the point is, it has been intensified and only gotten worse since then. So that what Good is talking about is the fact that people fear being bullied, intimidated, canceled, silenced, and indeed even discharged from important responsibilities hmm. based on what they may or may not say. So saying the truth is perilous today. We're at a real crossroads in this society. You, you know, uh, were you appointed by President Reagan or President H.W. Bush? I was appointed by Ronald Reagan. Okay. And you were chair of the commission for several years. Yes, I was a chair for the, I was a member of, for a period of about, I forget how long it is now, five years or so. And in the period of that time for about, no, not quite two years, I served as chair. Okay. You know, it is so frustrating to see Republican politicians run away from race discussions. Yes. Is it, is, I mean, okay, let them call you racist. I would say that if you've got the knowledge, if you've got the goods, if you know your history, if you know your economics, if you've been paying attention to the, the economic data, you can stand up and face the racism charge. You know, it, it, you know knowledge could, 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 could have given them courage. Was this one of the big problems that you found that Republican politicians, they simply don't know very much? Oh, there's <laughs> no question about that. And it's true across the board, Republican and non-Republicans. Uh, there, there comes a time when we all have to confess. And if we take, for example, our present uh, president of the United States, uh, we have to understand that there is a depth of ignorance there that cannot be sounded. And, and so we have to deal with that reality. But we try to inform people, and there are people of goodwill who can be informed. And there are many Republicans of goodwill who can be informed. And so what I say to people is we have to give them the specific lessons that they can internalize and use effectively. For example, uh, they can speak in the language of Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells, for they, in 1893, went back to 1619 to tell a different story than you hear from the New York Times. Their 1619 story was, yes, slavery came here, and slavery was a cancer, but the United States 
extirpated, extirpated that cancer with radical surgery. Hmm. And in the 30 years since then, it has demonstrated the strength and resilience of American principles. Because what Douglas and Wells were doing was protesting being excluded from the Columbian Exposition. That was the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Yeah. But, but the content of their protest was, look, you're not refusing and failing to tell the story of the accomplishments of the freed slaves. You're failing to tell the story of the accomplishments of America. Because what the freed slaves accomplished demonstrate the strength and resilience of American principles and institutions. Yeah, yeah. Your entry is entitled Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, which insists that we should, we must evaluate the state of Black America by this criterion, quote, you write, it's absorption into mainstream American life. That's that, that, that absorption into mainstream American life, this is, this is something to hold up. Yes. Uh, why, why, why that yardstick? That yardstick is clear because it's empirical. It's the reality. You know that I begin that essay by contrasting the perspectives from the mountain and the valley. And what I'm trying to convey is that what's going on in the valley seems to be invisible to people on the mountaintops. They don't see the profound changes, the absorptive experience taking place in the country. It's like a great chemical experiment. And in chemistry, when you want to create a solution, you bring a solvent and a solute together. Hmm. And neither the solvent nor the solute survives that. The solution comes out of it. Yeah. And that's what's happening culturally and socially in the United States. And we can really see it even at the very lowest levels of the society. But we are not acknowledging it because we are in the grips of this poisonous narrative of division, of dependent victimhood for Black people, rather than gradual absorption into the mainstream. What is, quote, the upswing that Robert Putnam, uh, a fellow social scientist, has charted? That's really the critical element in this whole story of absorption, because it has a background, which even Putnam doesn't sufficiently appreciate, though he demonstrates it. The background is this. After slavery ended, there was dramatic progress that occurred, which was demonstrated. For example, the population of black people between 1860 and 1890 doubled. An incredible growth rate, and there was no immigration feeding into it. By 1920, literacy achieved 50%. And I could cite other statistics, but the main thing I would cite is this. In that era of enforced segregation, Jim Crow, widespread lynching, and massacres and riots, such as in Tulsa, people sometimes forget the people who were being massacred were not helpless people. They were like the new Wall Street in Tulsa. They were people moving into the middle class and the mainstream. So that under the worst circumstances, American blacks were experiencing that upswing. Now, Putnam meant by this the whole country was going through an upswing, i.e. it was coming together in common purpose. But the, for us, the dramatic thing to emphasize is that American blacks were proving that they could move ahead on the terms of liberty in this society, even against great obstacles. That was the upswing. And then Putnam identifies since the 60s a downswing. But that's the era in which we've come to talk about American blacks as if they were just dependent, helpless victims. And not, in fact, as the evidence demonstrates, people who have moved strongly forward in accomplishments. And I'm not now talking about the singular first that we like to dwell upon. I'm talking about the great masses. 
I, I'm, I'm sometimes stunned at the way in which people, uh, liberals generally, will speak about African-Americans in the past, even under slavery, because yeah. I, I would say even under slavery, there were forms of agency yes. and resistance that w- within slavery that took place that very, you know, a lot of good historians like Eugene Genovese mm-hmm. pulled out. But, you know, I'm, I, I, I've heard liberals speak of African-Americans in, in 1920 as if they were helpless, daily uh, brutalized and and really children. Yes, that's exactly say, how not, they do it. This is not reality. This is not the daily experience of human beings. If it if it were like that, then then that that it it couldn't have gone on for one week. If that's it were right. like the way you the way you envision this. Yes, yes. This I think world. I think that's a fair observation. I think it needs to be repeated over and over again. Because when Lyndon Johnson said equal opportunity is not enough, he was not only lying about equal opportunity, and he was not only diminishing the respect for American blacks who got the message, we can't do it, we're not capable. He was saying to all Americans, you're not capable. Equal opportunity is not enough. So, So this was really an insidious undermining of our entire heritage that we've been living with now for a couple of generations. You, you know that the data that Putnam compiles put, quote, racial animus squarely in the Democratic Party, doesn't it? Yes, no question about it. It, <laughs> it, it originated there and it was sustained there. We can see this because look how long it took to pass anti-lynching legislation. It, it, and it was Democrats who resisted it. And it didn't come finally until we got through the Truman administration that we approximated being able to pass a law against lynching, something as obvious as that. Yeah. So, so yes, it was definitely Democratic policy. Party. And, and it's, it's not ancient history. More Republicans proportionately voted for the Civil Rights Act than Democrats, right? That is correct. Absolutely <laughs> correct. Well, then Republican politicians, they ought to be, they ought to be waving that banner a little, a little higher. Uh, well, they, they should be waving the banner. And, you know, that's what Robert Bland talks about in the book, right? When he talks about the political efforts of blacks post-slavery, he's demonstrating the uh, an upsurge in black patriotism that also accompanied the progress that I was describing earlier. And it is that that got cut off at the knees when, when W.E.B. Du Bois decided to endorse Woodrow Wilson and lead the NAACP and leadership in black communities off into the democratic farmland, that got cut off at the knees. Mm-hmm. And the one thing we're underscoring in the book, I do this and Glenn Lowry does this in his marvelous essay, yep. is to say, we've got to turn back to relying upon black patriotism, not for the sake of creating advances for black people, who of course would benefit from it, but for the sake of the country, yeah. because the country's salvation is at stake. I, I think the stakes are right there. This is this is the country's salvation. And I, I think that the big language really gets to a remark that you say about Ibram Kendi. You and, and I think this goes to his appeal right now. You say that what Kendi offers is, quote, a total vision of reality that imposes a that imposes a total claim on every soul. Is 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 that is that one of one of the things that makes him so forceful? 
Yes, he's been embraced by people who are determined to reshape the landscape, the social and cultural landscape. They say along lines of socialism, I say they have no idea what socialism means. They only know what they want to destroy. And, and they want to destroy it totally and assert total control over it. If, if, we, if we ask Abraham Kendi about, about you know, the state assuming the means of production, I don't think we're going to get a very sophisticated answer. Do you? I, I'm quite sure not. You know, one of the <laughs> things I underscore in describing him is how shallow is his historical and philosophical knowledge. And, and he, what, what, you, what, you said, what you said, Bill, is doesn't, don't, 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 don't those pushing the, the, the big R narrative mm-hmm. realize that, you know, living in a country that you disdain, that's not a happy condition. Yes. I mean, what does it do good to 16-year-olds, white, uh, blacks or whites, to tell them this is, this is a bad place? And it's it's shot through with racism that's going to victimize some people. Uh, is is this? Did did they ever think about the the impact? Well, I got to tell you, I'll give you an illustration of that. I just recently, just a couple of days ago, I listened to a presentation from a youngster, sixteen year old, a young, comfortable white child, who uh, was waxing on at length about how she's trapped in white privilege and, and how she is unable to speak to the interests and concerns of other people because of this background of white privilege and that she lives presumably in this uh, corner of the woods where nothing penetrates unless you force your way out of it and undertake ra- activism and radical expression in order to find your way. She's been completely sold on that. And it is an utter unreality. It has nothing to do with the life she lives, nothing to do with the opportunities she has. And she was addressing that to me, so, someone who could, of course, reply to her in refutation of all the claims she was making. And she had no awareness whatever of what she was doing or the context in which she was doing it. She was simply repeating this mantra yeah. Yeah. that has been drilled into their heads. Uh, it's... It's hard. Uh, and I guess it's because it's a narrative. It's not a rational, it's not a rational inference. It, it is a narrative, which is very hard to break. Both you and Robert Bland uh, in the book recall Booker T. Washington. I think few people today realize what a monumental figure he yes. was in, in the year 1900. Much, much, much bigger than W.E.B. Du Bois, yes. certainly at, at that time. Why is Washington not celebrated today? Well, you have to ask why we cease to celebrate him. Because remember, by the time of 1950, we had a half-dollar coin minted and issued in the United States with the images of Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver on that coin. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. It's it's one of my precious treasures because I collect coins and I collected that one. But, But that was up until 1950 where he was still recognized and celebrated for having done what he did, which included, by the way, inseminating the whole South with nearly 5,000 schools, the Rosenwald schools. He had the help of Julius Rosenwald, but it was his leadership that made that possible. Yeah. So why do we not now? Because of the rejectionists turn away from the heritage. The rejectionists turn away from America 
was a rejectionist turn away from black patriotism, from black agency. And of course, we know we've been locked in this since 1932, since the yeah. Commonwealth Address, at least, that Roosevelt gave in his run for the presidency, which eventuated in his four freedoms, which meant, and he made it explicit, your freedom is of no good to you unless we give you material security first. Yeah. Yeah. That was the message. And that message was propagated all the way up to Lyndon Johnson's equal opportunity is not enough. And it insinuated itself in black communities. Black leadership took it on. As you know, I, I speak about Martin Luther King stepping on his own lines by doing I, I, exactly that. I, I was going to bring up MLK because in, in another entry that you have called Competing Visions, you actually say that King made a terrible mistake when he accepted the idea that blacks and whites in America relate only in terms of oppressor and and oppressed. Yes. Uh, that 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 frame uh, w- was was going to doom progress. Yes. Uh, Why did he do that? You know, it's anybody's guess other than this is what I would surmise. Remembering where he started out, he started out with the promissory note, the, ch- the blank check, if you remember. He said, uh, we have a blank check from the founding, and it's now time to cash that check in. But that meant taking the founding seriously and placing confidence in the principles and practices of liberty. Yeah. So why did he turn away from that expression to demanding instead the equivalent of reparations? I, I think that at the bottom... He had been, uh, I don't want to make this too strong, influenced, if not completely charmed by the lure of socialism. Hmm. I think that's what transformed his analysis in the end. As in his appeal when he got to Chicago and to Memphis and involved in those urban strikes, changed tone completely. Catholics, it's time to ask yourself, is the prepackaged Catholic life enough for you? Remember, you're called to sainthood. No matter your vocation, the Saint Maker is a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner to help you reignite your faith, succeed in life, and experience spiritual freedom. Centered on Catholic wisdom and modern productivity science, the Saint Maker keeps you focused, productive, and on fire for the faith every day. Thousands of Catholics are on the Saint Maker journey and reporting amazing results. Try it out for 90 days risk-free. If it's not for you, return your Saint Maker for a full refund, including shipping. First Things listeners can learn more and get 10% off their first Saint Maker by visiting thesaintmaker.com backslash first things and entering promo code first things. We can, we can, we can move to Glenn, Glenn Lowry. In, in his contribution, he speaks of a particular challenge facing the black intellectual in America. The challenge is to come to terms with something that people don't like talking about, black-on-black violence, and in in sort of as as one phenomenon, and then the demonization of the black male in popular culture. Yes. Uh, How how do we how do we deal with those, those two phenomena? Well, you know, what I really like about Glenn's essay is that he doesn't peddle any snake oil. He says there's only one thing that can be done here, and that is to force the people living in those communities to turn their attention on themselves. Mm-hmm. He's very clear about that. And so he goes beyond 
uh, Douglas's or Washington's leave them alone. He say, look, let them come face to face with their reality. Uh, reaffirm their agency in the midst of their distress and force them to deal with it. And it seems to me that's the only intelligible response to this situation. Oftentimes, conservatives make the mistake, they have done this in the life issue and other issues, of wanting to turn to strong state power in reaction to the corruptions that they see, rather than falling back on the principles of agency that self-government calls upon in the confident expectation that people who are forced to own up to their responsibilities will then perform them well. And so conservatives need a certain discipline not to fall for that temptation, hmm. but instead to believe that making people do for themselves what they must and can do for themselves is the only sure way to make progress. Lowry says that the term structural racism is meaningless. Uh, why is it so popular? Again, it's like any fad that gets cultivated. Uh, let me just use a, an example of what's going on at the moment. We're celebrating something called Juneteenth, aren't we? Now, that's a joke, right? That, that it has no substance. We don't celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation. No national holiday for that. But we have a national holiday for the fact that East Texas was backward enough that they didn't hear about it until six months later. <laughs> but So how did that come to be? Well, it came to be the way Kwanzaa came to be, a cultivated campaign, driving a narrative, serving a specific purpose. It was not a result of spontaneous expression on the part of a culture, because we know true holidays and true celebra celebrations emerge spontaneously like yeah. the celebration of George Washington's birthday in 1777. That wasn't ordered by any legislation or any executive order. That was the spontaneous development of the community. There are no such spontaneous developments today. Everything today is orchestrated through public relations and marketing efforts. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Star Parker and Robert Boren have, a, have an entry. They cite a remarkable statistic. Uh, Bill, in 1960, the rate of unmarried whites and blacks was the same. Yes. By 2012, a 20 point, a massive 20 point gap yes. had opened. What in the world happened? Well, that's what I like about Star's article. And, and she's always talked about this because she's talking from life experience as well as from analysis and data. And what happened in a word, is that there arose starting somewhere after the 1932 a pernicious targeting of black communities, particularly in urban areas, but across the country. We remember Aid to Families with Dependent Children was a Depression-era program not originally uh, directed towards black families. In fact, primarily, it supported non-black families. But it gradually grew over time as the need for it in non-Black families diminished because of the war and the returning of veterans and other such things, that it became to be more and more focused on Black families. And in fact, it became so bad that people used to think that to be poor meant to be Black. And even Joseph Biden still thought that just a couple of years ago. <laughs> so the, the, that, that meant there was a focus on Black communities, which I call targeting. And at the same time that they began to target welfare in black communities, they began to argue that fathers have to leave the home. 
in order to qualify for it. Hmm. That was the kind of targeting. And guess what it did? It fostered breakdown. At the same time, they began to target family planning facilities in those same communities, i.e. target black communities for abortion. So targeted the community in a way that destroys the family, that diminishes the rate of reproduction, can have no other consequences long-term than those pointed out by Star Parker and Bob Lawrence, that it undermined the family. I know that the Monaghan report says there are other dynamics involved in this, but he's looking at it from the level of, here are the circumstances we can see, and he's treating the correlations as the causes. I've seen, no, this, before you get to the correlation, you ask, how did these communities come to be so targeted? and thus so vulnerable to these pernicious practices. So uh, what you're saying really applies to all kinds of social dysfunctions, not, not yes. just marriage issues, but yes. all kinds yes. of, of, of social dysfunctions. And I think that uh, part of the narrative would be, look, you've got to regard a lot of these uh, programs in the, in the word you say, targeting. Yes. It's not assistance, it's targeting. Yes. Uh, but again, Bill, that is going to take leaders who know their stuff, right? Yes. Who, 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 who do some of the nuts and bolts homework yes. on the data. I mean, th this book that you have written ought to be sent out to Republican politicians throughout the land. I will because take that seriously. They've got to know how to talk. They don't even know how to talk about the issues. It, it, it's, it's actually, well, you've, you've experienced this 10 times more than I have. It's quite dispiriting to try to talk about some of these, these social issues with politicians or, or their staffers. They just, they just glaze over. Right. Uh, they're holding, don't go there. Don't go there. There's just, you can see the alarm in yeah. their eyes. <laughs> and yeah. you, you, again, you've done this a hundred more times than, than, than I have. Are there, are there, do, do you see a change in, maybe this, this, this is the, the, maybe this is our last question. Do you see a change in the leadership in this, in this country? Maybe the conservative leadership in this country, you've got to address the race issue and you've got to do it differently than you have in the last 50 years. I, I do. I, I see a, a resurgence in the form of patriotism, which is beginning to take seriously the issue that America is at stake. And it's, so it's no longer paternalism that's on the plate. It's no longer a question of what are we going to do about those folks. The more the question becomes, what are we going to do for us? Then we begin to change the dynamic and we expose people to greater openness to tackling it. So I say the transition we're looking for is a transition that turns away from thinking about race in terms of people who are looking for a helping hand and turning it instead to people who are willing to extend a helping hand. Not people who are looking for a handout, but people who can extend a helping hand. And when politicians, conservatives, and others alike begin to think of black people as being able to help in shaping the future of the country, we will cross the great divide. The book is The State of Black America. Professor Allen, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Professor. It's always good to talk to you.
And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.